Season salutations, my sensible sensates. Welcome back for another episode of Mangum Reads. Saunter and sally over as we sift and see through the seemings of a sworn sword before we scry shortly on our subsequent seismatic series. With you as always is myself, Spencer, aka the only person willing to read the damn intro, and joining me are my staunch and st- steadfast sidekicks, BJ and Sarah. How y'all doing? I'm good, and I'm glad that I got to um, partake, if only in namesake, in your alliterative introduction today. Happy to serve. Spencer, it seems that my uh, throwing some shade on you for seemingly left out that uh, sensible intro from uh, our previous episode. I I like that you've uh, taken up that mantle in spades. Some people respond well to positive reinforcements. Some people respond well to praise. I respond very well to snark and scorn. So, yes, it encourages my action. Also... When reading our next book, Fifth Season, and just seeing seismic everywhere, I just start riffing on S's and start coming up with ideas. Seismic and stillness and shake and... Sesapina. Yeah. Yeah. Cyanite. Yeah. All kinds of ones. Yeah. Sorry, Spencer, if my snark and or uh, scorn uh, put you a little out. I feel like I've started something dangerous for the rest of this recording. Yeah, well, but let's let's get into it. Uh, we're fishing up the Sworn Sword, uh, our second episode in the second novella of A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, uh, mm-hmm. which was recently paid homage to in uh, the actual TV show. Um, so, so, yeah, we have that yeah. to tie us in. Yeah, last time we stopped the uh, Sworn Sword roughly about the midpoint, uh, where if you've been listening with us, you may remember that our hero, uh, Sir Duncan the Tall, uh, went over to rival commu- to rival Holdfast um, Coldmoat to try to negotiate a peace and resolution to conflict on behalf of his lord, Sir Eustace Osgrave of Stanfast. He had uh, less than a bit of luck associated with it, in that he originally was pl- originally a trick was played on him by the various denizens of Coldmoat before he got in contact with its uh, governing ladies, uh, Lady Rohan. Ro- um, Weber. The Lady Spider, um, or the... Uh, yeah, the, the Red Widow. Yes. I wonder why they call her Red, Spencer. Well, the long red hair plays a certain degree of role, I'm sure. <laughs> probably something like that. Uh, probably. Uh, he actually has a rather good exchange with her. She's clearly rather taken with him, both his straightforwardness and also his impressive size and awkward grace in his own fashion. But in lacking certain key knowledge about his... Uh, sworn lord's position or sworn knight's position as well as uh, lacking knowledge about what particular references might deeply offend the red widow he is promptly slapped and cast out of cold mode and forced to ride back to stand fast very much both bruised personally and in terms of his uh, trust for sir eustace osgrave best in what he's suddenly learned BJ, Sarah, remind me, what exactly did he learn that uh, his that, uh, Lord Oscar, uh, Sir Oscar was not telling him about uh, his prior history and his prior standings in this world? Well, I was going to say, the one thing that he really did learn is not to get on uh, reach level with his face with somebody that's way shorter than he was. Cause I love that it was just like, kneel before me, and then she could slap him <laughs> in the face. It, it, it was a funny kneel before Zod moment. I would like if Zod just slapped Superman across the face. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what, uh, yeah, so, uh, basically, uh, he learns and I think it's a confirmation and also, um, I think also Martin probably understood that having the main character not understand something that the audience does is infuriating. (laughs) And so spelled out that, 
uh, Sir Osgrey was uh, partaking in the rebellion that occurred about 20 years ago, give or take, um, where uh, the younger son of the Targaryen rose up and um, there was a major civil war and there's still uh, essentially remnants of that where people will ask each other, did you fight for the black or the red? Where... Uh, Spencer, you'll help me out with this. One of them is a black dragon on a red background, and the other is a red dragon on a back, black background, and that really matters because the Targaryens are crazy. <laughs> yes, that that, that kind of hits the point home. <laughs> do, do I take it from the typing sounds, Spencer, that um, you don't necessarily know which one was which off the top of your head? No, this is me taking off work early and still getting emails from work asking whether I accomplished various deadlines that were impossible to accomplish, given that I wasn't in the friggin' office. Ah, all right. Gotcha. Multitasking. Got it. Yeah, I, I, I know full well that Spencer knows offhand which which is which. <laughs> I just thought on well, the, the off chance. Yes. Well, I mean, the, the nature of the Civil War was basically, I'm trying to remember whether they go into this much in the text, but there was a prior king, Aegon the Unworthy, which is directly named after a... Uh, English king that also merits the uh, similar condemnation, who essentially decided that, despite the fact that he'd formed numerous bastards with numerous women, both common and high-born, that he was, despite necessity of maintaining a clear uh, process of succession, going to legitimize all of them on his deathbed, with no prior real plan set in place for how that would work. One of those was Daemon Targaryen. uh, Who was a warrior of remarkable renown, which Eustace tells us about once... um, Dunk makes it back to Stanfast, who received uh, the ancestral blade Dark Sister of um, the Targaryen house, and so was effectively recognized. Well, wait, hold on a second. University of Dark Sister. I'm trying to remember the blade now. I'm actually blanking on it. Lightbringer. Let's go into the story, and I'll, I'll remember where that goes. <laughs> That was something like Lightbringer, but anyway, yeah, we'll we'll get to it. Um, so basically, one of the younger sons bastards or whatever got the super cool sword and he was awesome in every way and the champion of the realm and the best dude ever um and his the quote-unquote rightful heir who eventually won the battle was um presumably older and whatever else and would have normally received the title given the succession um and my guess is these two men are probably very well contrasted uh, by the different portrayals of the head of the Golden Company, Harry Strickland, uh, where one is an impressive fighter and the other is more of a scheming and, and uh, administrator, but well-respected. Very administrator and also a remarkable conciliator in terms of him brokering a marriage alliance that finally brought Dorne back into the fold, hence why we see so many people in Dornish in the court and in the last book, so many Targaryens with otherwise Dornish features. Ah. Um, but as I said, let's, let's get into how the plot is structured in terms of Dunk rides back to Standfast. Well, can and I, can I fairly... um, just pause for just a second? Because I think the other thing oh, yeah. we learned, um, the other thing we learned here is that like, yes, this sort of like large geopolitical um, mm-hmm. kind of si- situation and the lies that Sir Eustace is telling about his role in it um, is important and is particularly important to Dunk, but it is possible um, that Lady Weber's real motivations um, are much more personal, right? So what we learn is that not we only do. was she fond of Sir Eustace's son in her own youth, um, Adam, I believe, Adam, right? yeah. Um, when she had been married off at a young age to a much older man, um, 
but it was the real love of he was the real love of her life and that she she blames Sir Eustace and his machinations and sort of poor choosing for his death. Well, um, and we, so Sir, Dun- Sir Duncan bringing him up in this moment was also the sort of catalyst for um, well, violence, getting I guess. Yeah. yeah. So, so I feel like we didn't quite get that whole bit of information here, like at, like right when she slapped him, but it was like shortly thereafter. Yeah, it was it's right. right before. Sir Septon Septon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The Septon fills, fills Duncan on things he maybe should have known a little more about um, from Sir Eustace, like numbering in in the sort of list of things that Sir Eustace maybe should have told him about uh, yeah. before allowing him to go into this sort of... Yes. Um, and we, we get a little bit more information about uh, the royal line as well um, and sort of uh, Egg's father and, and what he's doing in court and, and a little bit more insight into uh, maybe the royal disposition. Uh, it's another practical thing that we, that we learn as well is that as a result of Sir Eustace uh, supporting Damon Blackfire rather than supporting uh, Damon Targaryen or Darian Targaryen, he his lands were remarkably diminished. Mm-hmm. Um, that the river that has been the center part of this entire conflict is not in any way under his control or lordship. He has no rights to it. She can do with it as she pleases. It just happens to go across part of his land. Um, and um, we also have uh, Egg, or uh, basically talking about his revulsion for bastards, which I assume essentially comes from uh, the infighting in the family that preceded his birth, and so uh, his sort of opinion that uh, the in the eyes of God, there's a that's what makes the trueborn son as opposed to bastards, and there's no way to legitimize them, and. Uh, Egg talks down about bastards for a little while, presumably from like talk at the dinner table, and Dunk is mm-hmm. just like, I could very well be a bastard. Like, do you have a problem with me? And that sort of shuts him up. It's interesting that Egg never really considered this. I mean, he clearly just uh, uh, idolizes Dunk, and this is something that he just never even pondered, despite the fact of being a pretty reasonable conclusion about where Dunk might have come from. Well, and it goes back to what we were talking about in the last episode, too, about um, the the little bit of kind of weirdness in Egg's maturity levels, right? And mm-hmm. what he seems yeah. to have a lot of knowledge about um, versus what he is still remarkably sort of naive and romanticizing. Um, mm-hmm. And so this idea about sort of who Dunk is and where he comes from, like he is very clearly either not thought about it really much at all or romanticized some sort of backstory that like has very little um, relation to any number of possible truths. Yeah, and we've seen that in Egg's character throughout this book. Like from the very first scene where we come across the crow, cha- crow cages, Dunk pretty sensibly says, eh, he probably stole a chicken or pissed off a lord while Egg's inventing these elaborate scenarios about robber bandit lords about how they could have eventually led to this, to this um, heinous fate. Mm-hmm. I mean... We keep on running into with Egg that he is clearly well-educated, that he clearly has a, a background of schooling that Dunk could never even imagine. But he is still 10, and he is one hell of a sheltered 10 that even a year and a half roaming with Dunk has not done much to chip away at quite yet. So I'm going to bring up a very long previous episode of uh, Mangum Reads where we talked about Isaac Asimov um, mm-hmm. and how Asimov essentially didn't have any female characters or love interests <laughs> for quite a while um and mm-hmm. it was essentially 
after he started dating that he had like female characters and after he had like a reasonable relationship that he had anything like purporting to be something close to a love interest um i have a feeling that george r r martin might have taken a should have maybe taken a page out of asimov's book and like maybe spent some time around children if you're gonna have one be kind of the main (laughs) character in a book so you have like some idea of like what an 8 a 10 a 13 year old sounds like before you try and write them because as we mentioned in our previous episode egg is all over the place in terms of maturity yeah and very much does not line up with his age um Mm -hmm. and i think that uh he martin kind of got away from it to a certain extent with um, the main series Game of Thrones because, or A Song of Ice and Fire, whatever, um, you know, either children were essentially acting young or acting like adults. And I yeah. feel like he very quickly has them mainly acting like adults as soon as he can, and they're just kind of ignoring that they're kind of children. Yeah, I mean, and I think it, the problem that he runs into here is that, like, it is certainly possible to write a a believable, the word we kept using was precocious, but a believable, precocious, royal child, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But when you are trying to do this episodic narrative where, like, he is increasing in age by years, you still have to scale that at some point. You Mm -hmm. have to change. You have to change the speaking style, even if as a six-year-old or an eight-year-old or whatever, if he had this sort of, like, um, scale of knowledge that would not have been available to to other children. Like, you still have to scale up the way of speaking and the sort of understanding of the world, and none of that, like, this is a very static understanding um, of what hap- of what's going on in the world um, yeah. and how the and, world works. I, I was going to say, I think, Spencer, you're offering up the, well, the only person he can is really learning from is Dunk, and he doesn't know how anything works, so he's not going to, like, get anything further. Helps a little bit, but I feel like that's a post hoc like all right well what (laughs) band-aid can we put on this open wound to pretend that it's not there yeah this this one fits with the narrative and i find it interesting too that the book is either attempting to save face or even be tongue-in-cheek about it because it's at least once or twice that dunk straight up says that he occasionally forgets how old egg is that how wise egg can be at times while at the same time being a bit of a you know a easily naive um precocious child I wonder if it's in some ways the the um, the writer bleeding in to either try to cover himself when the kid's being inconsistent or even just mock himself that, yeah, he's going to dance around a little bit. I'm writing in that it's part of his character that it's inconsistent. I'm going to guess that it's a it's a cover-up going on. <laughs> Probably, yes. Uh, th- this is the uh, elaborate uh, cover-up theory that, that we have about George R. R. Martin. Yeah. That, you know, his inconsistencies in his characters is, is part of the world and, you know... <laughs> purposeful well in in terms of lessons that egg is learning we do do again see as you said that conversation about the subject of bastardy and how he shouldn't necessarily prejudge based on what he hears at the dinner table this is one of the second of the lessons that dunk is actually providing and that he's giving egg perspective that he never had in the ivory tower Mm -hmm. he's giving him an element of real world in the dirt wisdom in terms of how life experiences can actually improve your station and knowledge and perspective on the world in a way you otherwise wouldn't get from just staring down on all that you own. And that is useful, and that is kind of the purpose of their wanderings together. But it's clearly something that will come over possibly many years than them doing this rather than what they've acquired so far. Yeah. 
and it, like I, I think that's kind of the whole point and i like that we do get to see those moments um, because mm-hmm. I think that's a sort of a very necessary thing and better justifies this completely goofy, uh, you know, main character and sidekick that we have rather than just being like, all right, it's a thing and I'm never going to talk about it again or show that uh, Egg's actually, you know, being purposefully taught those lessons. Mm-hmm. Well, after they have that kind of discussion on their way back, they go to pretty rapidly confront Sir Eustace. Uh, as to his uh, prior lies of omissions, which he's somewhat defensive about, never saying that he lied, they just merely assumed. But they immediately confront him essentially on the idea that, well, you just did this because you wanted to get Cold Note back. And Sir Eustace seems pretty deeply offended that they would even assume that. That yes, that was an aspect of it, but it wasn't what he was fighting for. It, on his, and from his perspective, he wasn't fighting for any personal gain. He was fighting for who should have properly been the heir, the superior leader, the person of military skill and ability who they'd actually want ruling the Seven Kingdoms. Uh, Blackfire is the sword. It is. Yes. So so it seems yeah. like it's the Blackfire Rebellion because it was the sword that Damon had. He also, Damon also took it as his, basically his house name, of where he basically invented his own house, Blackfire, in response to that. Um, and him and other Blackfire contenders claiming that mantle bedeviled the Seven Kingdoms for generations afterward. Yeah, it's sort of an interesting way to uh, deal with that. Um, and also kind of like a crazy thing that it was just like, I'm going to give this 12-year-old something that is essentially priceless within the realm and, and the marker of kings from one perspective. Yeah, and... and Aegon the Unworthy was very much meriting his title, and he caused no end of problems, including from this gesture, which they immediately debate of where Egg just kind of shrugs and says, well, my dad always said, you know, you should give you should give a guy a sword that knows how to ride, you should give a guy a, give a, guy a horse that knows how to ride, you give a guy a sword that knows how to fight with it. Dam- uh, Darian wouldn't have had any use for it, so why should he get it? Which is a perfectly sensible explanation, but it doesn't go into the uh, nature of symbols and emblems and what importance they have in terms of the uh, basis of power. Yeah, and it was also a very funny conversation because Egg is like, well, my father says, you know, that that you do reasonable (laughs) things. And Oscar is like, well, your father's an idiot. And it's just like, well... (laughs) No, he's not. And I think... You know, one of the things that sort of from from the narrative perspective we get here during this conversation that is so interesting, especially on kind of the heels of the conversation we were just talking about um, with Egg and his assumption that, well, like, of course, Dunk couldn't be a bastard um, because reasons, right? Um, bastards are bad. Yeah, is, is this sort of like moment that Dunk has when he starts talking to Sir Eustace where he says, or well, he doesn't necessarily say, but the narrative voice kind of says um, around him, until this moment, he had never met a man who'd fought for the pretender. And then we go into his voice um, or his internal monologue. I must have, though. There were thousands of them. Half the realm was for the red dragon and half was for the black. And this sort of like never even stopping to consider that that is in the realm of possibility. Um, mm-hmm. When, like, of course he's met people who were fighting for the pretender, um, but everybody has figured out, everybody left alive has figured out kind of how to get along um, yeah. in this kind of mask and this, and this facade. And there's, you know, this whole sort of 
um, idea about sort of like how difficult it is to transition from war into peace. And everybody thinks it's much harder to sort of go from peace to war, that that is like much mm -hmm. more difficult. But like we are getting just these little hints at like actually the real transition um, is figuring out from war to peace, especially when you are fighting in sort of like such close quarters with with people who are so close to you as well. Yeah. Yeah, very, very much so. I mean, a, a recurring theme throughout this whole book, it really seems to be the nature of loyalty and what it means to swear your sword to a cause. About there's a, a definitely a presumption on among them based on Victor's writing history and also based on the fact that Blood Raven apparently has been working pretty hard behind the scenes to just banish any positive memory of either uh, Damon Blackfire or those of his supporters. Mm -hmm. That those who backed the losing side were bad people that were supporting a traitor. Whereas Dunk's now seeing from very much his own perspective that swearing yourself to a side should never be a statement necessarily on you. It shouldn't be a statement on you being tied to their ideals or their values. It can be just a, a very, or even a condemnation on what those values were. It can just be very much a normal course of events that a side supports a side. Just as he's now found himself in Sir Eustace's camp, fight arrayed in a war against another faction without any knowledge of what led him to that point. And when they confront Sir Eustace, they kind of do so from the basis that you were an evil man to support it. And he goes on to a really extended speech about the nature of the reasons by which Damon Blackfire was and should have been the rightful heir and the better king. And that those that supported him were honorable men fighting for what they believed in, but have now been tarnished by history solely on the basis of a series of unfortunate events that led to their loss. And what was otherwise a very close thing. So Spencer, um, mm -hmm. and I... I should know this offhand. Read this very recently. Um, do we know who uh, Arlen Pennytree fought for? Um, it is... Dunk seems to very strongly believe that he fought on the side of Darien and the uh, quote-unquote loyalist forces, but I think Dunk doesn't really have the thought or realization here that maybe that's not entirely true and he was just assuming such and Arlen Pennytree was allowing him to assume such. Yeah. Um, I guess I... I, I, I don't remember it being confirmed one way or the other and i think i remember him sort of thinking that like egg would know because penny tree did comment like he fought under this banner and then was like yeah but i probably shouldn't ask him it, it, it's in dunk seems to strongly believe that he fought on the side of the loyalist forces and that his existing squire i think his young heir is a young relative died in the process which opened the gate for dunk to assume the position but as you say, this is now a topic that has become a very sensitive area that maybe he doesn't want to explore deeper into. Yeah, and also, like, he probably doesn't want it out there that the guy that knighted him was in the rebellion, and now he's training, like, sort of essentially one of the heirs apparent. Um, yeah, it, it wouldn't be a good look. Yeah, um, and I guess the other thing that I, I wanted to give you an option to talk about, kind of like your book nerd bitching, um, but your other nerd bitching, is... Um, I, I can just bitch on my spare time. It doesn't have to be a, a nerd category. <laughs> yeah, but, with but it. this is a nerd category. Um, so, it is, I'm sure. Um, I'm a nerd in general. It's still just bitching. Well, well yeah, way. you know, we obviously all are. Otherwise, we wouldn't be, you know, doing this podcast. But um, hmm. so after the Civil War, I guess I feel like the amount of history that, that I've learned and, and dealt with um, with various Civil Wars or, or, or Reformations are just usually kind of like well and then they got back together and the sort of one place that i've been that sort of just got back together seemingly just sort of got back together and was fine at least you know when i was there so i 
was in Germany for a little while a couple of years ago, and they just sort of seem like, yeah, it's Germany. Like, there's no East-West. There's no, you know, issue like that. Like, we don't even deal with that anymore. But I feel like, at least in the U.S., essentially we're still feeling and have reverberations of uh, the the Civil War, or as um, certain places that some of us have, have been to, the War of Northern Aggression. Um, well, I mean, oh. no, Sarah, well all I, what I was going to say is that one of the things, um, one of the kind of like differences um, between for example, East and West Germany and the kind of reunification there and the American North and South, um, as well as like this, what I've, what I've read and the sort of theories I've read about this that um, talk about this kind of expanding to a lot of different places. Um, one of the reasons that it continues to be that division and that kind of like lingering mythology and storytelling um, continues to be so rampant in the American context in ways that it is not in the German context in the way that you're talking about, BJ, is that, like, j- upon reunification, certainly, um, Germany stamped out any discussion of Nazism um, and the sort of, like, Hitler and the cause and all of that in ways that, like, in America that was allowed to proliferate. Um, right. mm-hmm. And there was a romanticization, like a continued mythology romanticization of the American South, the lost cause, the gone with the wind kind of mythology. Um, this sort of like, we were fighting for states' rights. Um, and God and, forbid and you say of, that we were fighting for anything else. Like, right. And, and then that, like the, yeah. the continuance of like separate but equal and Jim Crow yeah. laws and things like that, where it's just right. like, well, you know, we're not going to put a hard no on that right, right now and so because and, we were like continued to allow be a week because the south was continued to allow or continually allowed to tell those stories they were able to kind of build and coalesce an identity around that kind of like um um sort of tragedy of the lost cause sure. in ways that just has not been allowed to happen and like where where uni- reunification has been more successful elsewhere that type of storytelling has not been allowed yeah and i guess i, I think- find it interesting here that it it's like there doesn't seem to be as much of that mythos where yeah. uh a lot of uh, presumably a lot of people would have fought for the other side and mm-hmm. there isn't like this rapid communication or a uh, very centralized government and also i want to say like sarah i wasn't trying to exclude you i just didn't want to put you on the spot for something that i knew that spencer uh oh well all history things and battles spencer holds dear to his heart but i knew i could put him on the spot and he'd have many things to say I, well, I know very uh, little to say about battles, but I do know things to say about sort of like cultural memory. So that I can speak to that point. But Spencer, if you have things to say on kind of other sides well, of it. Now, to build off the cultural memory point, it's a good point to mention about how that can develop or how or what would prevent it. I think for the two examples you mentioned, BJ, one of the most stark differences is where they, it's the reasons they were brought back together of where for East and West Germany, it was a voluntary act, a mutual agreement between an existing mm-hmm. strong state and essentially a collapsing one mm-hmm. to restore prior boundaries that essentially have been forced on them by outside parties. Uh, as much as you want to go into the German Communist Party and whether it was a entirely domestic or foreign support organization or not. 
Whereas the difference between the, uh, the Union and the South and the resolution of the American Civil War is that that was explicitly done under the terms of a conquered nation by not, not, just not, not a third party, but by the party that, that was now absorbing them back into the whole. And that it was done on unconditional terms, that it was done explicitly at the point of a sword, a lot, brought a different situation in terms of how the two were brought back together. Now, similar to, as, we, as you talked about, Sarah, in East and West Germany, when the North and South originally came back together, there was a 11-year period called Reconstruction, which formed afterwards, mm-hmm. where very much kind of similar rules were put in place. Certain parties were prescribed, certain people were guaranteed rights, troops were put in the field in the South to enforce those new constitutional rights, those new protections, and prevent various pro-South potential militia groups from emerging back up. Um, as a there's an endless debate among historians about why Reconstruction failed, about it being too quick, potentially, about it not being quick enough, about there not being enough political will or even economic will to bring it about. But notably, the moment the troops were removed, the South immediately started imposing its own rules. All Republicans were banned from office. Interesting to see how those two have switched. Um, and the Jim Crow laws and various other restrictions on the rights of black people came back into effect almost immediately. Um, so I think that is one issue in terms of the difference in perspective by which people came back to the Union. But rather it being that a voluntary act, when it's done at the point of a sword, unless you make active steps to try to move beyond that, to try to bridge that gap in a way that can actually establish common ground, as much as your authority is still only built around a sword point, the loyalty will only be built around a sword. At least that's one possible interpretation for how Reconstruction went and ended. Well, and it's, With respect to... Oh, I was mm-hmm. going to say, it's certainly interesting, um, too, kind of given your given your point, Spencer, that like the, the rhetoric um, from the South kind of around what Reconstruction was is very much a rhetoric of, of colonialism, um, that they yes. were, that the South was colonized by the North. Um, which is yeah. very different than what you were articulating in terms of East and West Germany. Yeah, it, it offered an interesting comparison of where a lot of the lost cause, in my mind, very much, if we want to use Germany as another example, very much mirrors the stab in the back theory that you see in Germany during the Weimar Republic, between the gaps between World War One and World War Two, of where it's very much this view of that we could have won if not for these other factors, that it was a noble cause that we were only betrayed about, and that those that defeated us were evil and wrong-motivated and all kinds of other things. It's a real warping and twisting of history for the purpose of providing a panacea to harmed pride. Uh, And it was allowed not only to fester and develop, it became the dominant historical thought under the Dunning School for decades after the resolution of the war, and particularly after the end of Reconstruction and just the free run of the South to invent whatever theories they wanted to about why they lost and what the nobleness of their cause. So I know I opened Pandora's box. <laughs> but t- um, tying this right. back to Westeros. So, so I guess, I, so to tie it back to Westeros, and, and this is sort of where I was going, why after such a short period of time do you think that the rebellion has been so successfully quelled? I dispute the notion that it has. Okay. Um, but I'll, to support your theory, I think the main reason that we off, that were offered in the book is that a a lot of the actual leap. This is a feudal society that, as we saw with the peasants that are going forth, they don't have much in the way of a political viewpoint or care. Mm-hmm. They care about the barley and the melons in their fields. It's their lords that have the political will, the political ambition, the desire to adhere to a certain cause or whatever. Else. And so, They're because the ones that enough the of, of the lords were, you know, basically removed from power and other lords instilled the general workings of the society has become everybody who is loyal to uh the the winner 
there's an element of that, and there's also an element. I mean, there's very powerful lords that are still very much in power and around, and continue to be in power and around um, in the time of the Song of Ice and Fire series. Like they name dropped the High Towers. Mm-hmm. They run the largest city in the Seven Kingdoms, Old Town. They did before the rev- the, re- the uh, first Blackfire uh, revolt. They do after, and they do all the way through Game of Thrones. I mean, Doffer Connection, Jor- uh, Jorah Mormont's uh, first wife, or his second wife, was a High Tower. They are still a very much a noble family that has a lot of influence and power. Wealthiest family in Westeros possible. Um, so a lot of the noble families persisted, but a large portion of the actual invested leadership died. And as this book says, similar to the idea of like a military enforced control and influence, um, Bloodraven, the new hand of the king, seems really, really good at either doing culture wars in terms of suppressing the motivations and the perspectives on the Blackfire pretenders and the, those that went after them, and at using a collection of spies and assassins, whatever else, eliminating anyone that gets uppity and making it publicly known that he's he's maintaining what resembles a terror state and doing it in a way that is successfully suppressing anyone who might voice a contrary or negative opinion. At least that's the perspective people appear to have on him and what he's doing, whether that's actual or not, we don't know. So there's definitely an element of a lot of those who actually, in this feudal society, governed whether why this happened are dead and those that aren't were of either uns- uncertain loyalty to start or are sufficiently cowed by the threat of violence or direct loss of lands and title from those that are above them however one little quick point just to mention for history this rebellion was the first of five blackfire rebellion there are still those that are ready to rally to a rally to a banner there are still those that feel dejected and unsatisfied with the current governing forces and are just waiting for a new leader to appear. But again, this being a feudal society, they're waiting for that leader. They're not loyal to a cultural value or even an idea of like the South or a kingdom or a nation. Those don't exist yet in their processes. They're loyal to a king. If that king or that pretender or that claimant isn't there, there's no cause to rally behind in the same way. That's just one of the unique kind of perspectives you have to look at it for society. So, Sarah, I, I want to make you answer a question and then also throw something else out to both of you. Um, the first is um, they also mentioned uh, giving up hostages. And so I believe this was actually like a thing and it's That's been true. referenced quite a number well. of times um, where essentially like the, the firstborn needs to or, or the heir is sent to... Uh, the capital or whatever else to sort of be held under guard, but also probably uh, undergoes a little bit of um, Stockholm syndrome. A little and... brainwashing going on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sure. Um, and so I guess, uh, do you think that's also essentially what's keeping them in line? And given your reading and uh, submergence into the, the world that is a song of ice and fire, like, how often do parents actually care about their children enough to make hostages matter? Um, and uh, given your your cultural history, you know, was was this a thing that happened? And like, did it work? And then the other thing is, do you think that um, just sort of throwing it out there that uh, Blood Raven is using the Faceless Men's assassins, or is he ha- using his own assassins? And is that like, um, because as I sort of remember, like the Faceless are supposed to be like semi apolitical. Um, and, you know, the use of political assassins just doesn't seem to be like a major thing in this world, other than like in this one instance. 
So I think to go first to your question kind of about, um, about especially children being kind of raised in other households um, mm-hmm. as a somewhat sort of semi-hostage, hostage, excuse me, situation. Like, it's an interesting question because like it, I, I don't, I don't know a historical answer to it. It seems to be to me um, really a symbolic act, right? Um, that it is a, it is a sort of move that is based in, in power and because we can, as well as a sort of like inculcating, um, an indoctrination to, um, a new generation that like, no, you're really going to live with us and you're going to learn to think like us and kind of take that back wherever you go, if you are allowed to take that back to anywhere. Um, and so I don't, I don't know, I don't really have a sense um, of like how much that really mattered to, I don't, I, I don't know how much that really mattered to like parents who may or may not be still alive. Like um, it's yeah. an interesting, it's an interesting thing because like our, our concept of childhood and kind of childhood in families is like relatively new. Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm just not, it's really a product of like the 1800s and really kind of the Victorian era that like children are a thing as we know they are. Um, Mm -hmm. and that families function. Modern luxury. Yeah, no, it really is that we had like the time and the luxury and the money to like, generally speaking, um, to allow children to have a childhood, um, but also to allow sort of children to function as the kind of way we think about children in a family in modern society. Um, like so my I will say sense that, is that I like think that it has is not yeah deeper origins but but I I do agree with you otherwise because um and I don't know how much Christianity has it but Judaism has like a before you're 13 like you're a child and you don't count for I mean not count for anything is is very separate from the like counting for a religious purpose like you're not mm-hmm. part of the adult religion and so, yeah. like, I, I don't know how much that propagated elsewhere, but I do know that that's, like, a thing. Can I, can I chime in on a couple points there, PJ? No, Spencer, you're not allowed to talk in this podcast. <laughs> like, where are you getting off? Yes, sir. And, and the other thing that I will say is trying to Google for, like, whether, you know, taking, ch- like, children as hostages, like, and raising them as your own is not something you should Google. <laughs> um, I spent a brief foray and there was a lot of stuff Elizabeth about ISIS Smart. and I stopped. Yeah. Uh, in, in terms of histor- historical focus, uh, it was the regular means by which you conquered a people. Mm-hmm. Um, we go, I, I remember in the readings of Julius Caesar that mm-hmm. when he was conquering various Gaulish tribes, he would take hostages from each noble family and then raise them in Roman values so that they could then go back and propound those values in the event that he'd ever determined that their parents were sufficiently loyal. Um, it was an element, I mean, it, Sarah, you brought a very good point there, that it is, from one perspective, the most profound act of submission, is that in, in these kind of intensely patriarchal societies, the idea that you have so unable to protect your family that you actually have to surrender them into the custody of someone that was directly trying to kill you recently, you could not have a more profound and demonstrative act of weakness. So that's definitely part of it, about very much humbling these families. But it also is a very practical role of where as you said, the modern idea of a family that you are raising the children for their own benefit and for their own growth and finding their own lives is just so new. Is something we've developed since children stopped dying in large numbers before the age of two. 
Once they actually live long enough that we could invest in them, we started thinking about what they would do with their life. Um, back then, the main purpose of a child was my heir, the persistence of my line, the persistence of my land, a person by which can assume my titles and lands afterwards. And or so if you're worth taking a some, farm or Yeah, also, else. yeah, like, well, like labor yeah. in I'm the house. I'm noble yeah. right now. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Do, okay. Yeah, do the noble yeah. perspective yeah. right now. Yeah. From the noble perspective, if you're literally taking their heir, you're taking the existence of a future family. That if you have their heir in your custody and you do anything wrong and they kill your heir, your family ceases to exist. Likely your rival neighboring families just subsume all of your lands. You've lost your heritage and everything you actually have a value and investment in as a person is your family line. So both as a political, both as a strategy in terms of humbling lords and also influencing the children to be loyal allies going forward in the event you ever return them, and also just from keeping them loyal in the sense that everything that they actually have a value in and the concept of family and an heir is now being taken and controlled by a hostile sort of Damocles kind of way. It is a strategy that has existed throughout history going up to, and again, this is odd, kind of stopping with the modern era when we started valuing children as something other than potential pawns on a board or what value they could have to you as a future investment. So, and then the second thing that I brought up and, and I, you know, we can sort of quickly gloss over that if you don't think it's interesting and actually continue with uh, the story, um, which is uh, (laughs) political assassination. And I feel like this is sort of a, like, sort of like a big thing and sort of like not a thing at all in, in the uh, world of George R. R. Martin, where Mm -hmm. there's this whole like priesthood group that's sort of dedicated to assassinations. Mm -hmm. um, And there are, you know, a number of or at least some major political assassinations that that we see in all of the books. But as a general thing, it's just kind of like no one really worries about it. And and so, like, how did that change so much in, like, a couple generations from basically a terror state that seems like it's enforced via spies and assassination to everyone being like, holy crap, somebody got assassinated. This is insane. Um, at a certain wedding. I think we've kind of talked about before that the world that we start off within the uh, Song of Ice and Fire, maybe more than here, is a world that is in, that has enjoyed about, you know, 10 years of unbroken peace. They've gotten a bit, they are, as uh, Catelyn Stark one point puts it, that these are the nights of summer and winter is coming. They've had a certain degree of luxury in terms of not having the idea of daggers being behind every door and possibly hostile lords. Um, being part of their memory. They have the Mad King, but he's almost a generation ago. That uh, here, there have been cycles of civil wars now that are just part of the normal background they're operating in. Everyone seems to resent Bloodraven, but at the same time, no one's really in a position to challenge what they now kind of view as the norm. Um, as, for whether, as for whether he's using um, faceless men, I'm a, you know, I, I imagine he's probably buying buy Westerosi with respect to that, just because trying to keep a faceless man on retainer would get costly quick. But don't know for sure. Yeah, fair enough. Um, it, it also reminds me of, um, there's a role-playing game sort of vaguely similar to Dungeons & Dragons called Paranoia, mm-hmm. where uh, Big Brother is out to get you kind of thing. Um, and it has a funny feature that... Um, basically being part of a secret society is something that gets you killed and having uh, special powers is something that gets you killed um, if Big Brother <laughs> is, finds is out it about game it. That occur- 
Hmm? Is it a game that encourages you to be basically just do nothing and be boring to survive? No, it, well, it, it's a game that encourages you to <laughs> to lie, deflect, and you know oh. do things and 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 make like very subtle slash weird alliances with your fellow players. Um, but the background is essentially every single player always is part of a secret society and has special powers, ah. mm-hmm. and so you go from there. I'm down. Um, Sounds fun. Anyway, so the reason that, you know, this sort of reminds me is just like everybody has something special about them and or, or there are many things that have like special characteristics in the Song of Ice and Fire and it's like super prevalent, but every time it's always super expensive, but somehow like it just sort of happens to be like important or very useful and part of the plot. So... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being able to use faceless men, having Valyrian steel, you know, sort of all of those things. It's like, well, it's important or, you know, part of the plot. So it's going to be brought up in, in what we talk about. And obviously, you know, part of that is like, we're not going to tell stories about boring things because you no know, one would read that book. But, um, you know, having uh, Dunk be sworn to a rebellious lord that you know ends up in these weird circumstances is you know not super unlikely but it tells a good story indeed and it also um uh, here's a practical question as well in terms of the stability of this realm do you guys believe that if one of uh, damon blackfire's children came back to westeros and raised his banner that sir eustace would be one of the first people in lines uh, supporting his cause yes yeah and uh, do you think he would be alone or do you think he may be representative of what a few many other lords and knights are probably feeling, but just not comfortable expressing? I think that he would get about as many banners as Rob, but not John. <laughs> to use modern modern explanations and references. Yeah. Um, so I think there there would be people that would show up, but like enough time and pain has passed that like it's gonna be older, uh, smaller houses and. The sentiment's going to be there, but not the power, um, because a it was you know it was fresh. A lot of them died, and the powers that be have quelled a lot of rebellious sentiment. You know, as we discussed, um, and so I, I just I don't think that there would be any sort of major uprising because either lords are trying to reestablish themselves and basically have been cast down. Or they don't care enough. Pretty good read, BJ, given that for most of the later Blackfire rebellions, they increasingly started depending on foreign support rather than counting on domestic aid. Well, and it also um, seems that they're just like taking our very small sample size here um, of Sir Eustace's kind of villages. <laughs> like, there just aren't that many people left to fight yeah. either. Um, so, what that practically would look like, even if, as you were saying, BJ, the will is there. Um, you know, I th- I think you're going to have a, a little bit of trouble sort of rallying the peasants around you as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's sort of like if right after the Civil War, the uh, Great Influenza happened, and then it's just like, <laughs> all right, well, True. now we're going to try and, you know, rebel again. And so not only did you lose the war, but then you lost, like, 50 to 80 percent of your population in a great sickness and now you're trying to pull the reserves of maybe what's left Mm -hmm. um and Mm i i i think that it's kind of funny that this is just sort of vaguely tossed in there that like 
a ton of people died after a ton of people died in a war where you know even lords are falling to this sickness and so it's it's clearly stricken a large uh, chunk of the population and that's sort of just like all right you know well we're gonna toss that in there and maybe a little bit more like the plague given Mm -hmm. the era of time that george r R. martin likes to draw from but same kind of idea well returning to the story (laughs) (laughs) uh they have this conversation with Sir Eustace where he defends his position and argues vehemently in favor of the merits behind uh, Damon Blackfire's claim to the throne and that he lost under, essentially, fluke. Um, and having had this discussion, Dunk is essentially left with a decision about whether he intends to leave Sir Eustace's service. And, at least for right now, he decides to do so, with the statement that essentially he can't trust a person who would lie to him about that. Um, yeah, so... Again, I, w- I want to gauge your reactions because mine was just like, wait, what? Um, where Dunk sort of gets to the like, all right, we're leaving, which, you know, I, I get and I appreciate that. But Osprey then goes to, you know, did that woman offer you to take you into service? Are you leaving me for that whore's bed? And it's just like, you know, is he sundowning? Is that why he's being so like obstinate and unreasonable because like essentially up until then he's like yeah i get that like i'm kind of a nobody and everything's relatively reasonable and i kind of get that that he's angry about it but like that just seems like a very weird uh a very i guess in line with a lot of fantasy tropes but like a very weird thing to go to i mean i interpreted it at the time that he was essentially Maybe it was finally just hitting him like a ton of bricks that he was just about to lose this war. And it was just a statement of anger. I agree, though, that we it's a weird thing to go for to start. I mean, he told a lot of negative stories about the Red Widow and all the rumors about her luring people into bed maybe and killing her husbands. Maybe he's in some way referencing back to that. But it did seem to be an interesting expression of anger that we'd not yet seen out of him before. Yeah, and I guess instead of castigating Dunk himself... You know that that he's being a traitor to his word, or or anything else that I guess in my mind Oscar would have gone for otherwise, because he's talking about loyalty and nobility, and just nope, I don't know. Well, in terms of his uh, last night, Dunk does spend it in Stanfast. He essentially figures that uh, Oscar owes him that much to have a good night and a last dinner before he leaves. Um, and he does his usual preparations for bed and then has, again, the, well, I think it's the second or third of our dreams over the course of this book. Um, this one I'll just simply summarize as being more than mildly erotic. I believe this is the next dream that he has. Yeah. Um, uh, this is the dream where the uh, Red Widow factors in to a certain degree, I believe. Yeah, and there's artwork to go along with it. <laughs> yeah, certainly the illustrations would suggest that that is correct, Spencer. <laughs> um, well, he has this dream, which... Um, happens, uh, reflecting his own growing views with respect to her and growing attraction, I would suppose. And also Um, a very weird reaction to that, which is, I shouldn't be dreaming about her, I should be dreaming about the puppet girl that I've (laughs) never, like, I could have pursued and I didn't, and that, we're just gonna have that not be a thing. It reflects a certain degree of innocence about Dunk, that uh, a girl that he flirted with a year and a half ago and has never seen again and almost certain not to see again, he still has a certain adherence of loyalty to. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so uh, he has the dream, it happens, and then he has the sort of like, I shouldn't have dreamed that, which, again, uh, very <laughs> weird. And mm-hmm. 
then is rousted surprisingly um, because something's burning. Picks up in the morning to find that the uh, check, I forget what the name of the wood is, Wattswood? Yep, Wattswood is, that the wood is a fire. Yeah. Um, I think he's is, rousted, yeah. Is fully aflame, mm-hmm. uh, with it being under the being the belief of Sir Os, of Sir Osgrey and uh, Binnis, um, Binnis the Brown that the Red Widow has set it afire as part of her campaign against against Standfast and an indication that her army is rapidly marching upon them. Um, and so he fi- goes up to the top of the tower and finds the two of them kind of planning out what their strategy of war would be, of where. Essentially, they're planning on doing a scorched earth method of destroying her crops, laying waste to her peasants, under the assumption that they've got no chance of winning, so they're just going to make her suffer in the process. With Egg listening on, increasingly horrified to see, personally, that war is not what the various minstrels and history books write about. It is this kind of petty, violent, stupid bullshit. And he kind of begs Dunk to, you gotta stop it, sir, to which Dunk just kind of shrugs and says, ah, they're just scared and talking shit. We're gonna leave. Um, and he moves to leave. But as he does so, he remembers the various peasants, their peasant levy that they've brought together, and sees Venice training them up for all of these suicidal operations that he and Sir Eustace are talking about, and has a sort of change of heart about what he's willing to invest in. Yeah, um, and basically sees them, you know, doing their best to pretend to be soldiers, and... I'm failing in that regard. Yeah, Failing quite quite admirably, shall we say, in that regard, um, and basically tells them just just go home. Like yeah. there's there's nothing you can do useful here. Which they do go home, but like there's something in me that's just like you're so useless. Just leave. Is is just like a de- really like demeaning and depressing thing to say to somebody, and they're like, oh mm-hmm. yes, sir. Like we're gonna run out of here right now. Um, is just, uh, all right, well, I guess that makes sense, but, but still. Well, you did have to kind of yell and threaten them a little bit. Um, and whether that was because they were sort of like scared into non-movement in the first place, um, or because they actually had some sort of like, yes, I'm going to stand and fight kind of valiant shreds of valiance. Um, well, Bennis also says that like, if you move, I will kill you. Sure. Yeah, and there are a lot of intersecting forces of fear going well, yeah, on here. <laughs> I, you know, and, and we know he is very prone to violence, so I would yeah, not be surprised true. if all of the villagers have been on the receiving side of some of Sir Benis's, um Tendencies? Yeah, 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 that's a weird way of putting it, but yes. <laughs> I, I try. Um, uh, but it, seem, it seems like the winning factor in this conversation is that Dunk is bigger and yells louder. <laughs> Yeah, and is closer, at least closer than Sir Eustace, right? Because Eustace is incensed at this whole thing. Um, And at the, like, temerity of Dunk at dismissing, who is supposed to be leaving, um, at dismissing his sort of valiant soldiers here. um, And just kind of blows a gasket. Yeah. And this, in his mind, is just further evidence that Dunk has just sold his loyalties to to the Red Widow. Mm -hmm. Right. not only are you leaving my service at my most desperate hour, but you've essentially dismissed my entire army in the process. Well, you've all, all, left all me. eight of them. Sure. It was a hell of a force. <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, my favorite response is Egg's like, oh, we didn't hear you. The chickens were really loud. <laughs> Listen, Again, as someone who has owned chickens as well, like that tracks. Sarah, do you miss the chickens, by the way? They're not here. You can admit it. 
I am glad that they are in good hands. Um, and I am glad that those hands are no... Did you want some more fried chicken before you left? No. <laughs> also, I may not... <laughs> I may not eat another egg for like six months. Although I did have a moment the other day when I was like driving home. I had just come from the grocery store and I had not bought eggs. I was like, oh... I don't just have eggs in my house now. anymore. <laughs> it was the egg a, producers have gone. Yeah, it was a real moment for me. Um, but no, like heart of hearts, I do not miss this. Well, they serve well for egg in this conversation. At least it provides some cover of an excuse. And admittedly, the, the clucking chickens have may, have come up in basically every scene describing Standfast. So they are a fixture, if nothing else. Yes. Um, but as you said, Sir Eustace comes up and confronts Doug, just howling with rage that Dunk would betray him in this matter. But Dunk surprises him that I have dismissed your army, but you still have me. I intend to fight with you still. Which catches Sir Eustace really off guard and seems to give him a second wind. Yeah, but as... also his like reaction, again, is kind of, is like, well, yes, I have your one sword, but like, what use is that to me? And... I mean, I, I guess it has to play into the it caught him off guard because it's like, what do eight peasants that like get scared of somebody yelling at them? What were they going to give you that like a presumably vaguely trained knight with actual armor and a sword isn't going to give you? It, I think in some ways it factors well into the story that Dunk heard before from Sir Eustace where Eustace straight up goes back to the marshals of the North March. So I think... He's really hearkening back to the story of his distant ancestor that stood alone in the river against foreign invaders and successfully dueled them. That there's just some heroic tragedy associated with just the two of them riding off to defend their lands against this oncoming horde that he's really quick to buy into. Because there is an element of death-seeking about this man for reasons of his own tragic history leading to this moment and his own fallen house before it. And I think Dunk's given him that avenue. So, a little bit of foreshadowing. Oh, more than a bit. Oh. And, well, Sir so, so Eustace straight up references what he expects Dunk to do once they actually march out to this. Yes. Uh, and then there's a, a lovely little, do you want a clout in your ear? No. Do you want your armor? <laughs> yes. Um, so, essentially, uh, Dunk gets uh, outfitted for, for war um, and to meet uh, the, the, the spider, the red widow. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Venice is vaguely convinced to follow along and I like that he's the brown knight because that just it's very uh, fitting with his character oh yeah um, he strikes me did I hmm? did, hold on this sort of brown knight thing he strikes me as someone who would, who would sort of like chew tobacco is this a thing that he actually does or have I inven- invented this uh, for him he essentially no, no, he does okay it, you know the, Rust, the, the vague rust leaf, it's rust leaf that's tobacco. right okay yes. okay um, he also Reminds me of uh, Brave Brave Sir Robin. <laughs> There's no element of that, yes. Yeah. Monty Python. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay, I just wanted yep. to clarify that because, like, all of a sudden I had this very, very strong impression and I couldn't decide if I was making that up or not. Okay. No, I, it, I don't it, think it, you're you're making that up at all. Um, and it, also, it, I will throw a bone to um, somebody who will probably never hear this, but um, there's a character in Deadwood or there are a couple of characters in Deadwood that this sort of reminds me of. Um, in the first season, there is essentially this, I don't remember his name right now, but a complete layabout who uh, and gambler who just like enjoys insulting Wild Bill Hickok and is essentially mm-hmm. like the most useless drunkard 
schmuck that that's just in the town and it's like why are you insulting a gunslinger like <laughs> that's in front of you uh, probably the best life choice really yeah and uh, and that sort of seems like what sir bennis like does with his life is just be an asshole to everybody around him especially and he like has no care for if they're like bigger and stronger or anything other than they're in front of him and he the brown knight well it's a testament to his to his chosen lot in life that he has survived to the present point and survives the story probably better off than almost any of the other characters in it um i'm not sure what that's the author saying about somebody like the brown knight and his ultimate role in this world but he persists if nothing else uh, but they they probably wisely decide to leave the brown well heh, i I'm not sure if it's wise or not. I wouldn't necessarily want to rely on the Brown Knight in the field to march with me towards the plan they have worked out, but it turns out leaving him back at base didn't prove that smart either. Yeah, he just sort of festers wherever he... Yeah, but they decide to leave him back at base with the uh, various servants that are at Standfast, with basically the instructions that if we don't come home, let the Lord of Highgarden know who killed us. Yeah. And they ride out to the river to presumably meet the the forces of cold mode as they're about to cross onto Osgrey lands. Um, with... In the prior scene you referenced Dunk getting his armor, he also rather cagely tells Egg to bring something else, too, which is, I think, we learn out in the later scene, is a particular boot with a core thing hiding in the toe of it. Yeah, um, and, you know, give it to George R. R. Martin that, like, say, repeated phrase, um, shall I show them the boot, also comes up a fair amount in these yeah. stories. Um, and so the other thing that I, I just want to put forth that I think is very, very important in every bit of storytelling that basically ever goes on ever, but mm -hmm. has nothing to do with real life, is wandering out somewhere and meeting somebody else. <laughs> and Yeah, the, the luck of that. <laughs> right, and so, you know, this is sort of true everywhere in everything, um, and... It's it's one of my favorite jokes that uh, there's a a web comic that just sort of uh, addressed what happens what would happen in real life with Star Trek. You know, ships are never gonna meet like upright and face to face <laughs> because it's space and that makes absolutely no sense ever. And also, space is really big, so they're basically never gonna meet ever, no matter what they do. And so mm -hmm. it's like, well, we're gonna go out and meet the the red widow and it's like okay first it's, yeah right. yeah yeah first of all like the town that you actually can pull from has got to be really small as we discussed in the last episode and second of all like in many many square miles of wooded area that you're just gonna ride out in the right direction and meet somebody else i feel like it's gonna be the funniest game of marco polo to like try and square <laughs> up Particularly since it's not like they're meeting at, like, you know, a bridge or something. Or, or it's like a clear fording point in a river. They're just going to the river and not seemingly even a particularly shallow part of it. And just hoping she shows up there. And yeah. they prove right, as it turns out. Well, well, yeah. And, and, it, and it makes perfect sense. And I guess it's, you know, you, you have to give some credit to, like, the, the British and the French and, like, the... the uh, the wars that would happen, you know, hundreds of years ago where they sort of like, mm. all right, here's where we're going to meet. This is what we're going to do. And like people brought picnics and whatever else, because how else would you fight a war? 
because otherwise yeah. you're just like wandering around in the dark you have no idea what's gonna happen and no one has any idea what's gone on for like months on end and then like a couple of years later it's like oh well that battle yeah i guess we won that um you should tell somebody oh and that war i guess it's over maybe i should yeah. stop fighting <laughs> exactly yeah I'm reminded of times like when we were kids. Do you guys remember what what age did you first get cell phones? How about that? Do you guys remember when you first got a cell phone? When I went to college. Um, that light on. I got one. I got one when I was in. I think a freshman. Re- reason I ask is that I, you remind me, BJ, of all those times before I had a cell phone <laughs> of when I was set to meet a collection of friends somewhere, and it was just meet at this general location or meet at this venue. And then ensued like the twenty minutes always after we got there of when we then tried to find each other there. Right. It's like, let's meet at the mall. Ensue hour and a half trying to find each other in the mall. Yeah. But, as you said, in fantasy, vastly larger area with no reason that they're actually trying to meet each other, always successfully find each other. I mean, but otherwise, like, it's a really, like, it would be, in some ways, a very funny book. And I'm a little disappointed that Guards Guards didn't, like, do this a little bit more because that's, like, the book that it had to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, where it's just like nobody ever meets and they just like wander off into the forest and, and that's sort of like what happens and that's well I guess that's Lord of the Rings um, <laughs> shut up <laughs> it's, it's also a little bit sort of like Shakespearean too right this sort of like series yeah. of misconnections yeah. Um, yes but then those become the misconnections that drive the plot right uh, a mix between Shakespearean and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern yeah. yes yeah um, um, and I guess the, but, the other thing is, it might have been a time. So, Sarah, I think you're might be between me and Spencer. But if you, so I got my cell phone in like oh one or oh two, as a senior in high school, like going to college. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if it's like because we're all of essentially that generation where the technology and the price became like reasonable at that point. I got mine oh one oh two when I was okay. entering no when I was entering high school. Yeah. Wait. I, 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 I tried uh, to do my years you're now. You're young. I, okay. I I went to UNC in two thousand four, so it would have been you know freshman sophomore year of high school. God damn it, Spencer. Okay. <laughs> sorry, sorry, man. Yeah, you're like two three years younger than me. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but they meet. Yes, they, they do meet, and and they have uh, a meeting of the ages. They do, and it's clear that Dunk, though he views himself as a lunk, has really kind of thought this out in a way we didn't act, I would say. That he has a plan for this. And first element of it is, convince the Red Widow to meet me alone in the middle of a river. Which, surprisingly, works out pretty well. Yeah, it does. And she's very apologetic that she hit him and hurt him. Um, mm-hmm. which is uncharacteristic maybe but um very nice of her and they they basically work it out between them that they're gonna have single combat between him mean, and long inch i mean they go through a long discussion before then which yeah, we, we can abbreviate it that you know she again invites him into her service saying there's no point to all this they dip, they kind of fight back and forth about who did what and who's responsible for what where they blame her for the forest, which she very much vehemently denies at first, before then kind of just continually playing with her hair while saying, well, maybe some people under my service did it without telling me. Yeah. You know, these things happen. I mean, the other side of it is, like, Long Inch definitely did that. Yeah. Like, you know, there's no question, I guess, in my mind, that Long Inch is very much the... He he would love to be blood rape, but he's not. 
the the only debate is whether she gave was either gave the order or was aware of it. But I don't think it necessarily matters either way because, as you said, the long inch would have done it regardless. Yeah, um, and I think that like a good parallel to draw, um, and Spencer, you might disagree with me here, is um, the widow is very much like Arya, where mm-hmm. she wants to be. She essentially wants to be a lord, um, but mm-hmm. she would rather be practicing you know, the martial arts, like archery and whatever else, rather than seeing to the day-to-day of her realm, where, you know, Longinch is essentially somewhere between um, Littlefinger and uh, Ned Stark, where it's just like, you actually need to do stuff and also kind of an asshole. I would add in that she definitely has a certain degree of care for her peasantry in a way that probably Sir Eustace doesn't even practically. The fact, mere fact she sent her meister to care for a single wounded peasant suggests that there is some investment on her part. But I think the martial, the martial focus is in part due to the fact she thinks she feels the need to appear strong and martially inclined and armed in steel, just to represent to those around her that though she's a woman, she's a woman wrapped in metal. Yeah. Um, but they talk, they debate back and forth. They're really getting nowhere because there's a point of pride that has made it impossible for her to back and way or yield, while at the same time, Dunk's unwilling to uh, surrender from, or abandon Sir Eustace or abandon his position. At one point, they really just kind of corner it down to Bennis about just provide him, and that really can wrap up a lot of this conflict. And to the utter surprise of um, Moran, Dunk then goes, okay, a cheek for a cheek, and just pulls a blade and slices his own face open. To which she has a delightful response of where she basically confronts him with, you're insane, and I would marry you if you were of even slightly better birth right now. Yeah, well, that and, like... Touched by the honor of the gesture, Ren. I I think it's a little bit of, you know, what came right before, where it's just like, there's no other guy that would have said pissing contest in front of me. Yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah. and and so line. like you you tell it like it is, have a sense of humor, and you're insane. Um, and have the almost not, so rare knightly virtue of willing to be self-sacrificing to protect a cause that you've sworn yourself to. You are everything I would aspire to, just not of the sufficient birth. Yeah. Um, they keep going back and forth against. Eventually, Dunk essentially just shows her the ring that we've now learned is the bottom of this boot. This token of Makar Targaryen, which very clearly indicates who Egg is, and Rohan gets it quick. So the other thing that I kind of want to point out that's kind of insane to me is Dunk is essentially, like, super important right now. And he makes this, like, well, if pigs had wings, they'd be dragons. And that's essentially what he is right now. He he is... actually, yeah. Yeah, he is the knight that that is that a dragon is squiring for him and so he says this as a like you know this is insane and like no one would ever do this but that's like the craziest thing that he can say because he essentially is that pig that became a dragon mm-hmm. so yeah, that's, a, a, that's a great analogy right there bj um Having shown the ring, having cut his own face, they're still kind of at an impasse. But which, as you said, BJ, eventually they come on to terms to propose single combat. Which the Red Widow is only too happy to agree to, given who she's sending to do, to engage in this single combat. Question for you both. How much do you feel, in some ways, she's controlling how these events are playing out? In a way that, as we see later on, ultimately is directly intended to benefit. I think she's taking advantage of a situation that is presented to her to her own, excuse me, her own ends. Um, so 
a little bit more of an opportunist rather than a spider in the shadows. Yeah, I think that's I think that's probably fair. I mean, we certainly get the impression that she's like very smart and very um, willing to capitalize on any given situation that is presented to her. But I think we get little hints throughout the story that like her vision and her machinations are not the be all end all of what's going on here. Um, yeah. Yeah. And even the moment, like, whether she really ordered it or not, like, the fire is a little suspect. Like, is that really her thing? Um, or is that someone kind of doing that on her behalf? Like, moments like that, it becomes a sort of, like, you know, I'm not sure she has, like, quite the handle on this situation that she would like to think she has. Yeah. There's definitely an impression that, those again, she's very smart, she's very capable, she's doing a good job with what she has. As you said, Sarah, she's kind of flying by the seat of her pants. Mm-hmm. She's really representing that she's in full control, but it's really apparent along the margins that she's kind of making it up as she goes just to make it work. Yeah. And I, I, I agree with you all that this seems like when Dunk proposes this, she sees an opportunity, but I don't think it's one that she really thought about going into the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess I would say that um, there are sort of three levels of person in power that are is apparent at least in this world which is um sir eustace where they sort of almost vaguely have a little bit of power when they're there but it's fading at best people that have power when they're present and people that have power when they're not present mm-hmm. and so i would say that um there are many you know we can name essentially many major characters that have power when they're not present one is uh like the uh, Prince Makar, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we can talk about... The Ring shows that alone. Yeah, The Ring. Yeah. We can talk about Jon Snow. You can talk about um, Ned Stark, your, you know, your favorite, who even after he's died has shown a lot of power. Um, mm-hmm. And then people that have power in the present, like Tyrion, um, like the Red Widow, when, when they're there, they can control the room and they can affect what's going on. But when they're not there when they're not present, things can get very much out of hand and they don't have as much of a role in the goings-on when they're not physically present. And I think that's even really shown here by her decision to ride with her army. I mean, she's not a military combatant. She's a lady that could just send out forces seemingly loyal to her to do this. But she feels the need to be present. I think I agree with you, BJ, that her power is really directly dependent on her own image and her own appearance in this scene and that she's rapidly worried that her subordinates will not prove loyal to her if they're outside of her sight. And I think that... The long edge being first and foremost. She knows that, and she's correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they decide to have a duel in this river of where Septon Septon gives a very interesting little speech for beforehand to seemingly bless this from a religious perspective that they've tried to work their way out of it, that religious faith doesn't approve. Okay, we've done that part. Now kill each other. Uh. Um... Yeah, I was going to say, and what follows is um, great fantasy, and maybe <laughs> maybe someday we'll um, we'll do like a whole episode or a couple of episodes that are just like fact checking on the different fun scenes that happen in fantasy, because mm-hmm. I I know full well that um, my girlfriend who is a horse vet would just <laughs> be in a conniption about you know having horses run into a river and go through a battle in a river where they're not going to have good footing and um i think neither of the horses die which is you know just complete fantasy bs 
Um, Especially when they're both like, at least in the pictures, like kind of wearing armor as well. And so you have the uneven footing and the water and the armor and the like people on them in armor. It's exactly. A mess. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it's a complete mess. It makes no logical sense <laughs> in in a military perspective, a horse perspective. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it just ha- evokes good imagery that everyone can be like, oh, this is super cool. But like, um, you know, if you're playing Oregon Trail, you would have lost uh, half your goods and killed a bunch of horses at this point. <laughs> well, keeping to a theme we saw in the last book that um, we have reason to believe that Dunk, despite another year and a half of, pres- of presumably training on the road, hasn't necessarily gotten that much better. Because his duel against uh, the Long Inch is... Uh, he seems at best overmatched and kind of wins under a certain degree of luck that he's just able to hold his breath a bit long. Um, as they increasingly are dehorsed uh, de- and just fighting through the muck while trying not to drown or have their armor further crushed in. Yeah. And in the end, through a certain measure of luck and happenstance and raw determination, as always, to just endure whatever injuries he suffers... And size don't... and... and I feel like, you know... And I, I hate to keep bringing this up, but I feel like this is a consistent thing that Martin has with size matters. Um, yeah. Yeah. With many of his battles where um, if the uh, warrior is big enough, bad enough, impressive enough, they can just survive things that are um, that would kill a lesser man. Hey, we, we wouldn't have the story of... Uh goliath unless it was an unusual course of events that led to him getting taken out like that (laughs) there is an historical basis to say big means good in terms of medieval in terms of pre-modern battles uh yeah and um if we're going with far that far back you know no one can kill a massive giant cyclops so (laughs) there you go and unless you trick him with a a complex strategy of naming yourself uh, no one nobody in greek (laughs) yes and even then Um, you need a couple of stakes and you know, people get eaten. <laughs> yeah, if you, pe- people get eaten. You have to just randomly have drugged wine on hand. It's a long course of events to make that story work in yeah, any way successful. Yeah, you know, wear a sheep on your back, like all kinds of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Admittedly, it's not easy. But again, the whole point of this story is you need all of those things to beat a really big person. That's the point of that story. Sure. Yeah, um, and and uh, Longinch did not have those things because he was not uh, he sheep, quite long enough and did not have the inches to to best uh, Dunk, Sir Duncan the Tall, you? who was an inch shy of seven feet. Mm-hmm. I-, I like the little theme you kept going there, BJ. That was really nice. <laughs> I thought you'd appreciate that, Spencer. Um, so, so essentially, like Dunk finishes the fight the exact same way that he finished the last fight, which was... He doesn't have a sword. He barely has a shield. He just sort of tackles him and, like, beats the crap out of him. It, it is the dunk of flea bottom style of fighting, and it appears to still work for him pretty well. It's de- it's defeated noble knights on two different occasions. Yeah, and I but guess it it's him a little a- bit surprising that this isn't, like, a more common thing. That, that this isn't, like, something that somebody trained him for because, you know, he has the size and essentially full armor is meant so that a sword blower two aren't gonna kill you. It's a it's a strategy he learned in the, you know surviving in flea bottom that as you said in full plate armor works rather well if you can just endure the blows, get in close, and just hammer them into submission. Or in this case, pull a blade and work it very slowly, saving Private Ryan style up into a gap into his armor. Yeah. Um, or something else which we probably well 
might be a little bit of a spoiler. Hmm? Uh, a, 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 a very important person in the Song of Ice and Fire was oh, killed by... Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no idea what you were referencing there. So just uh, you, you could have just seen my face just looking utterly confused at the screen, desperate <laughs> to think of something to say. <laughs> uh, yes. I don't think it's much of a spoiler. It happened. Millions of people watched it. Yeah. Arya killed the Night King. Yeah, with with a small blade essentially piercing through armor. So so yes. that that is so a style. you know a very common thing that essentially uh, knights would either you you know could fight with shield and sword or dagger and sword and sort of the purpose of the dagger was a finer instrument that you could pierce and probe you know, smaller openings in, in a, uh, an armored foe. It's a realistic element we see in this fight that if you're fighting a guy in full plate armor, you're not getting through his armor, particularly with a sword, which is all Dunk really seems to have. Unless you've got a heavier weapon that you can actually either crunch it or pierce it with force, you really have to look for gaps. And that's what Dunk spends most of the fight doing, is looking for a gap in the armor, which he only eventually finds once he's under about five feet of water, struggling to hold his breath long enough to kill this guy. But he does! And immediately, you know, has this kind of weird moment of where he sees a fish go by and he's in the act of drowning and so just focuses on that. And then wakes up under a different roof in the wrong castle. Some passage of time later, utterly confused as to how he's there and how alive. Yep. And again, uh, many, many injuries that that he's going to recover from uh, essentially without um, any ill effects because that's what, excuse me, main characters do. Um, he's strong he also like actually drowned at one point um and yeah. they figured that they have sorted out that nonsense um and he is undrowned again yeah yeah sarah I like what is they... dead may never die i i understand <laughs> that they would specifically reference <laughs> i've got used bringing back dead people who drowned it's just another thing yeah, we we know how this works it transfers to you too yep. yeah I, I saw i saw the abyss you just yell at them and smack them a bit they wake up <laughs> Um, and then we essentially have the resolution of the story, which I feel like, I guess I kind of saw coming, but also, what the fuck? <laughs> it, 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 it is, again, a testament to the, uh, Red, the Red Widow working on her feet, because this was clever. This solved so many problems in a way that I have to assume that she was the instigating factor for rather than Sir Eustace. Oh, absolutely. Sure, but, like, what problems did it really solve? A. She didn't lose her lands. She's okay, still the yes. lady of Coldbound. She didn't lose her lands, but how is this better than pretending to marry a Lannister? Mm-hmm. And also, I, I guess this has got to be some modern construction that is making me like really uncomfortable about this. But what like, difference? I have the hot your son, but like, we're totally gonna bone down and have a kid now, and that's cool. It's worth noting, and this may have factored into her uh, math a little bit. He does uh, have a really nice mustache. <laughs> the mustache. Yeah, very very the silver mustache. Um, They never do have children, and he's dead inside of like two. And then she does go on and marry that Lannister. Okay. So. All right. Well, she's doing that all right. That may have factored in. Yeah. Yeah. She does quite well for herself in terms of this plan out. She keeps her land. She keeps her base of power. She endures him for a couple years. He dies of old age because he's already freaking old. And she wields that into becoming the the lady of the Western. It worked out. This plan worked out well for her. So you say freaking old, but I guess I got the sense that he was in like his 50s, maybe 60s. 
it's a medieval society. That's pretty freaking old. I mean, no, we, we Spencer, hear... it's not freaking old for a medieval <laughs> society. The only reason the the median age was that low was because of infant mortality. Let's not get respect... into those silly historical tropes. I respect that point, and it is true. However, we have established in the books that Dunk thought it was really old that the that Arlen of Pennytree had made it to somewhere in his fifties. Yeah, but he's like seventeen or eighteen, like. Sure. So, from the perspective of that, it is an older person, certainly. It is a person that, living hard years of grief and depression and alone in the castle, eating seemingly nothing but chicken, may not be in the best of health right now. <laughs> uh, yeah. That, uh, and we can't dispute, her estimate proves correct. But yes, in terms of modern, actual history, people going back to the classical era and the Bible regularly lived, could regularly live in the... Well, if they were in a, posi- a, no- a higher-up position in society that we actually have history written about, could live into their 60s and 70s without much issue. Infant mortality lowered the average rate. Yeah. Now, for peasantry, different question. Oh, yeah. But but these aren't peasants that we're talking about. No doubt. Um, actually, well, I, I didn't know that she married the, the Lannister, and um, I, I do want to press you on a point that... Um, Please? ...briefly got brought up in um, some other podcast um on our podcast channel GOT got questions mm-hmm. where you did toss out and mention that uh brand of tarth is a descendant of dunk that is true and i thought duncan entered the white cloak or whatever not the white cloak is it white cloaks uh, he he entered the king's guard king's guard who are yeah, also, who have also white referred to as the white cloaks sorry yeah. white, white cloaks is a separate thing in a different series um <laughs> but <laughs> Notably, in, in, in actually the books, they also have pure white armor, too. So it also factors into the reason that they're referred to as the color of white all the time. But yeah, gotcha. she is... Um, it's hinted at several times in the main books that she is Dunk's heir. At one mm-hmm. point when she's even looking for a random shield, she picks a shield that... She looks at a shield and goes, huh, that really seems like me. And puts it on, and it's the same shield that Dunk had drawn when he uh, was under the the, the... the shooting comet over the elm tree next yeah. to the little pool thing. It's that shield. She's using that shield. Okay, so um, I believe there was something about the Kingsguard not, you know, was it being yep. sent to the wall? No, but it was something like that. They are sworn swords. They do not take wives, whatever else. Doesn't mean he didn't necessarily contribute to a particular line before he joined them. It also doesn't mean that all the Kingsguard adhered to their vows perfectly well. We have Kingsguard that straight up had relations with Targaryen queens. It is like or any their sisters, uh, them too. You know, <laughs> same thing. Um, so it, it, George R. R. Martin, it, it's hinted heavily in the books. George R. R. Martin just kind of randomly at a convention just confirmed it as like his last question of the evening. So it's true. How it how it happened is an open question because we don't have any connection right now or know exactly when that uh, particular relationship that led to that error may have occurred. Isn't it like three or four generations though? Uh, we are right now set about 80 years before the present, so however many generations you want to say that is. Okay. I, I guess it feels really short for, like, no one to know what's going on. I mean, I mean, it's not that no one knows what's going on, it's just the books haven't told us. Okay. So presumably some people know, but I mean, to, get, to put it in perspective, um, the Red Widow is Tywin Lannister's grandmother, if that gives you a passage of time. Okay. okay. Yeah, that, that, that yeah, seems... That yeah. Okay, so so Tywin's grandmother. So I guess what's the timeline for uh, Dunk becoming part of the King's Guard, and I presume like an important part, and 
uh when does he actually like anyway like he, he it's it doesn't seem like he would actually have time to do this or have the knowledge and or wherewithal um but anyway i i feel like that's sort of separate in a, in a game of thrones uh uh, here's an here's here's a here's a date point that egg was born in roughly if I'm remembering this correctly about 200 uh, just to use the terms that they use mm-hmm. so presumably the year this is taking place is like 210 yeah he be- he becomes king in 233 okay so he, so he was in his mid he was in his low, young 30s by the time he became king and dunk became a member of the king's guard after that gotcha so we get a long period of time here before events um uh be- we have a long gap in history that has not yet been fully explained. Okay. I, I, so I'm going to put forth again that um, I feel like George R. R. Martin doesn't have things well planned out in, ter- in, in the way that other uh, authors might, because mm-hmm. that means that Dunk's close to 50 and also like some of the best Kingsguard knights of all time. And that would put him at like Osprey age when he's a badass knight. It, it puts Dunk literally and comfortably in his 50s when he's fighting famous duels against the Laughing Storm to put down rebellions. So, yeah, I mean, that's a thing. That did happen. I mean, there were uh, the... Um, I, yeah, last... Yes, I, I agree that it did happen in history, but there's no way that, like, actually writing about it, like, in real time, that that story happens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's possible he's going to change the timeline once he realizes some of these things and actually gets writing more books again, but that's just, that's vaguely what I remember the timeline is right now. It's possible yeah. I got the dates wrong, yeah. but it's something like that. Because I'm pretty sure Egg didn't become king until he was like in his 30s, because he was, part of the reason Makar was so okay with this is because he's not in the line of succession. He's the fourth son to a fourth son. It's yeah. way down the line before he ever takes the, um, but yeah, I mean, that that's, Currently, the scenario that's plotted out, another potential heir of Dunk that's almost confirmed but never specifically stated, is that he's Hodor's like great grandfather. Oh, okay, that makes. Sense. Is that we have a we have a, a one of Bran's visions that he has is seeing a knight taller than Hodor kiss a woman that he thinks vaguely might resemble a young old Nan. <laughs> Again, giving you a sense of passage of time here. Right. So we know that Hodor is one of old Nan's uh, like her grandchild or something else. So it's kind of implied there that Hodor might have some of Dunk's blood in him too. Gotcha. So, but, go, going back to the story at some point. We, we're uh, having delightful yeah, tangents with yeah, this. We're, pre- we're pretty much at the end and we're exploring uh, areas that are that are fond or, or something of, of, uh, of all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, Sir Eustace and the Red Widow are, are planning to get married and um, Dunk's not happy with this. I feel like Dunk's not unhappy, per se. Oh, he seems pretty annoyed by all this. I think Dunk's actually just, like, a little weirded out by the whole thing. <sighs> Maybe like you, BJ. Yeah, I feel like he's just like, what is going Huh? This, like, How did this okay, happen? Like, yeah. I guess. But, like, no, this doesn't make sense. Um, and I guess to sort of... So do you think that the Red Widow is placating him or kind of buying him off and being like, all right, you need to, like, keep it, like, not be crazy about this or is she trying to keep him out as like a sexy stable boy kind of thing where he's she's like okay well how about i give you a horse i don't think she lied to him with what she said in that stream i think she really really is taken with him and in some ways would rather respects the the fact what what (laughs) what (laughs) say it again bj (laughs) 
would rather ride him than the horse? Sure. Yeah, we'll go with that. Uh, it. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to leave that point behind me. One sort of thought. Uh, it, but I think when they're having the conversation in the barn of when Dunk's really moving to leave really quickly, which is kind of everyone's uncomfortable with, not really happy with, but they're allowing him to do it. But he runs into her in the stable, and she aims to give him a, somewhat offended that he's moving to leave without saying bye. And based on the tenor of the conversation the two of them have, he's representing that he is feels either hurt or spurned in some way that she is with Sir Eustace now, maybe rather than him, as dumb as he recognizes that thought is. And she feels the need in some ways to defend herself on that point, while at the same time also feeling bad. She doesn't want him to leave angry with her. She doesn't want him to leave on bad turns. She specifically says she wants him to remember her. So like a reverse uh, draw de seigneur? Sure, yeah, actually, that's, pre- that's a pretty apt comparison. Uh, a reverse prima nocta, uh, Sarah, if that... Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I, mean, I I don't see either of them as really obscuring what they're feeling here. That I think when Dunk literally tells her that, no, that horse is too good for me, they're both really aware of what he's actually saying and what nature of the conversation is about. And she's... She doesn't want, she, I don't know if she feels necessarily bad about this, but she doesn't want him, want, want them to leave on bad terms. She clearly has a fondness for him, maybe not the same level he has for her, but it's mutual to some degree. At least that's my thought. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think that she has a fondness for him. I also think that, like, she's kind of just into the fact that he's into her. Yeah, that, I'm very much agree. I feel like maybe the fact that he's, like, almost seven feet tall... He, he checks off a few boxes. Yeah. But they have this conversation. Dunk, showing a remarkable bit of initiative for the awkward lunk that he is, um, rather than accepting the horse moves to kiss her. And she notably returns the kiss. And midway through this, as he breaks lips, he comes to a realization of what gift he actually wants to remember her by. Cut scene. Fine egg outside on a horse that she clearly has given him. Um... Dunk rides out on on Thunder once again, having not accepted her gift, but having her lock of her, her braid wrapped around his hand as a memento for um, their future journeys. Yeah, that's super creepy. It kind of is. It really kind of yeah, is. Yeah, I don't like that really at all. Uh, they leave. Uh, they decide that they're going to ride north to the wall, seemingly inspired by Dunk's thought that he'd like to meet his dad and that he assumes his dad might have, that he always hoped someday that he'd run into his dad at the wall somewhere. Um... And I'm trying to remember, but as per usual, Egg gets the last word. Do you remember what it is? Uh, not offhand, but but yeah, I'm sure it's like another something usually snarky. Yeah, I'm making fun of him. Um, Actually, I guess it's, the... it's making fun of. Well, I guess it's making fun of Dunk. Oh, um, but yeah. it's making fun of the wall as well. So Dunk says, um, "And why do you want to see the wall?" And Egg says, "Well, I hear it's tall, and it's thicker <laughs> than a castle wall." Sure, yeah, um, that as well. So. Did knights actually take favors? And I feel like they did, but I also feel like at some point that's got to be like a kind of weird, gross thing. First of all, with the hair, but like we're gonna kind of gloss over that. But you can preserve. Also, hair. just like if you're tucking any kind of fabric anywhere, but but you know wrapping it around your arm, it's gonna get gross. And even if like, and I feel like wrapping it around your arm is also gonna get gross. So like, did ladies' favors just like get gross? And, like, everybody was cool with that. And, like, some knight just wanders up with this blood and mud-soaked rag and being like, I still have your favor. Look. 
I think it was more of a tournament thing rather than keep this until for the keep this for the rest of your life kind of variety. Right, yeah, but even like for a tournament, like a day or two, and it's going to be super gross. Yeah, I yeah, I I don't know this historically whether the ladies won, had a return policy with respect to favors <laughs> after a set period of time. So Spencer, I don't think I'd want one back. The ladies that you have given your favor to fight in your honor with your socks, do those like? <laughs> I will um, say in experience, per- BJ, I have washed them and given them back. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, if, if we're describing my socks as favors, <laughs> I'm giving those out freely. Uh, I am fairly sure I have left socks at the houses of any single person that has been dumb enough to let me stay there and not expect my socks to be left behind. Spencer, you should be a little more discerning with your favors. Perhaps it's just I want to share the love with everybody, or <laughs> want to express that love apparently. In yeah, old, yeah worn Spencer. Out socks. When I think of you, I just think of free love. <laughs> you know, in words that have never been paired with me before, BJ, you're hitting a good one right there. I do what I can. You'll be happy to know that I have worn exclusively the socks that you have given me for the last two weeks. Really? It, it has been the same two pairs of them, but you know, not, I've been not, wearing them. Not the ones that. Uh, the the Lee sent you. Uh, it's a. I, did you send me the black ones, right? Yeah. I, I, so I sent you the black ones, and and Lee sent you the ones that are are, are more uh, appropriately delivered, like on a pallet. Uh, he literally sent me ninety six pairs of is it ninety six socks? I believe. I think it is. It's not ninety six pairs. I hope. It, it, I've not opened them like all. That you don't know. <laughs> so it's a big box so, that's still sitting here. It's in the same room like, I am right I now. It's like that individual. I think it was one hundred eight. It was something unreasonable like that. So, so the text conversation the really was big box of socks. Um, I think. So again, this came out of a different podcast. Uh, my brother, my brother, and me where they were talking about like buying underwear and socks and stuff like that, and how that was an awkward proposition. Um, just like going out and and buying those things in a store, and they brought up that you could buy those things in bulk on Amazon, and so and I was formed <laughs> was spurred on to see like can you actually buy you know you know, whatever in bulk. And one of the things that came up was bulk socks. And to which I was like, I have an idea. Um, I need to immediately tell Lee about this. And he immediately to- told me, oh, I just bought Spencer like 1,087 socks. <laughs> yeah. Like, and like, okay. So 30 seconds later, he texted back, done. <laughs> I mean, it was fun for me too, because... Uh, Bridget is the one who usually just gets the mail and so I got home and she'd actually beat me home that day and there's an, a massive box just an unusually large box to arrive at our door that's just sitting on the middle of the table a box of opened. unusual size you might... Sorry, say that again a box of unusual size <laughs> in many ways yes uh, with me just having previously received a text from Bridget saying explain yourself or your friends I'll be home later <laughs> that's Which only happened ma- once and, well, no, it's happened on other occasions. This is just how that one played out. Where she'd opened the box, looked in, and just sending me a text to saying, uh, when I'm back, this will be explained. No, but the, uh, me being a lawyer, I'm going to wear black socks. So your black socks, BJ, have actually been most of what I've been wearing. That's what I have to wear most of the week. Perfect. Hopefully they're fairly comfortable. The real question, but, Spencer, is if you have gotten rid of the former pairs of socks. Uh, one large contention of them was used as packing material to send back to BJ. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, oh, to... well, actually, that was only the socks that I sent you. 
No, I put a couple of my socks in there, so there were some socks in there. Uh, other socks have been converted to dish rag, to have been converted to like cleaning rags as Bridget's trying to clean various tools. Um, but I still have, compared to where I started when I received BJ and, and Lee's generous gift of socks, probably still about 60-70% of those uh, prior socks. So really now I just have a lot more socks. <laughs> Interesting. So you can grace uh, more more lords and ladies um, <laughs> when you sleep under under their uh, auspices with, with uh, a present of your uh, presence. Actually, uh, I mentioned this conversation was going to weaken to my parents, and my parents just started laughing and said, Spencer, we've had to open up entire no drawers for the socks you just leave when you come to visit us. <laughs> Sp- uh, so- I, I, and I looked last time I was there, because I was up not that long ago, and I realized that my... The cabinets that used to be full of many different articles of clothing in my room, I've now got like three entire drawers that are just cast off socks I've apparently <laughs> left at their house over the last, you know, how long has it been? 15 years since I lived there. Spencer, you're the only child whose parents look in their sock drawer who find more socks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I like to give back. I like to just offer a token of my affection for all they've done for me. And I apparently like to express that in socks. That, that is important. Uh-huh. So, finishing this book as we continue we on another completely off. <laughs> well, we finished the book. Well, so I said I think I think the only other thing to vaguely talk about is presumably at some point we'll do the third installment of this. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe mystery night vaguely around the. Uh, well, I was going to say the end of of uh, Game of Thrones, but that means that we could not go into another book. Um, or have to take a little hiatus from it. It all depends how long we spend with the next entry on our elaborate catalog of materials. It, it's going to be more than two episodes. Yeah. Yeah. How long do y'all think it's going to take us to go through fifth season? I'm 40% in and I'm thinking three weeks. Uh, yeah, three I'm thinking at least three fair. episodes. Yeah. yeah. Um, maybe more. Because I feel like if we get into speculation or anything else, that's going to be long. Because, you know, the the couple of other novels that we've done have been at least two or three episodes. Mm-hmm. So the last few novels that we've done have been pretty straightforward. I mean, as, de- as dense a character dive as Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil is, there's not necessarily much theorizing that goes into it other than whether, you know, dying of pneumonia is code for something, which we pondered. Right. Um, for fifth season, already going in, this is a book which is just, you can just deep dive in to ponder all the things the author has no intention of explaining. Yeah. And well, I, I feel, at least in this book, because there it is a trilogy. It's a very good one book that I feel like has a good ending. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not finished the trilogy, but and I also don't know if any more is explained. Sarah, have you read? So I've read the further? second one, although it's been okay. a little while. Um, and I can't. I well, and I wouldn't now anyway. I can't necessarily tell you what is explained, but there is some more explanatory. There are some more explanatory moves that are made. Um, gotcha. whether those are entirely satisfactory or not, or kind of like answer all of the questions. Like, I think you both know from the tenor of the first book that the it's answer to that one. is probably no. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, Sarah, I already, I already appreciate you pointed out there was a glossary at the end because this book really uses its own language for a large portion of expressing what the characters are, are talking about. Yeah, it's actually it really, is, really helpful. There, there are entire sentences of where I just, I read it, and I look at it and go, well, I knew some of those words, and I don't think I can pull up a dictionary and find the rest of them anytime soon. Yeah, now and I can. think a reread definitely has helped me. Yeah, um, yeah, I understand a lot more having this be my second time through. Um, partially because I kind of know where it's going, 
um, but also kind of to your point, Spencer, you get used to that, just that language um, and yeah. what it means from the beginning instead of trying to have to, to suss it out as you go through. Yeah, it's, I mean, for a book that's named The Fifth Season, it's remarkably opaque for a large portion of the book so far. I, mean, I think it's been explained to me now uh, what a season even is in their terminology mm -hmm. and what, 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 what even a fifth season stands for. But I like that the book is in media rest. I like that it's allowing us to, the reader, to uncover as you go. And I'm going to look forward to talking with you all about it because I will very much appreciate y'all providing a certain degree of hand-holding as I kind of fiddle with this <laughs> on my first read. Yeah, uh... I think Sarah will join me and we'll do our best, but... But? We also don't really know what's going on. Yeah. No. Okay. Well, we, we, will, we will explore and ponder together then. Yes. Perfect. Um, All right. Well, folks, we had a delight in terms of talking about the second book of A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, the second of the Dunk of the Egg Tales. As BJ said, we will eventually get around to reading the third, probably after this, uh, the end of the, uh, the Game of Thrones series. For next week, though, we're excited to explore a different work, the fifth season, whose author is escaping me because my Kindle just died as I was looking at y'all. So who wrote the damn thing? N.K. Jemison. Yep. Thank you. I knew that. Um, um, so but until this then. will be another foray into the uh, non-old white writers, <laughs> which I thoroughly appreciate. And, and honestly, I think this is one of the best books that i've read in the past year at least if not yeah. longer i'm delighting in it so far it's a really fascinating read which is hearkening up a lot of my favorite elements from one of my favorite science fiction works dune there's so much of this that reminds me of that but it's going to be fun to talk about um and y'all it is a pleasure to talk with y'all but in terms of other people listening to us bj yep. where can they go to find our you stuff you can find all of our stuff at mangumtalks.com um and itunes stitcher podcast addict wherever you get podcasts you can find all of our stuff on mangum reads we try and uh release things on a relatively consistent basis between a week and a week and a half um mm -hmm. and uh you can find all of our other content with the uh mangum toss talks podcast series um there's got got questions which uh may be wrapping up in a couple of episodes um, mm -hmm. and we'll have to see what happens with that. We have Whiskey on the Weekends, where we are actually going to be doing a Whiskey on the Weekends this coming weekend <laughs> on Cinco de Mayo. And we are not drinking tequila. We are still drinking whiskey. Um, and there may or may not be other podcasts on that channel. Um, we've had some uh, ins and outs on that. Um, there supposedly is some Mangum Hoops, where every so often Lee and Levi get together and discuss basketball. Um, but this sort of seems to happen a little bit more on the beginnings of our Whiskey on the Weekends podcasts. Um, and yeah, um, if you have any questions, comments, or anything else that you'd like to tell us, um, there is a Contact Us link at the top right of the mangum.talks.com website. Um, and we read all of those and incorporate them into our discussions and future readings. Um, and we actually do have a couple of suggestions at some point for other books um which uh hopefully we'll have in uh a reading coming up in the not too distant future um but i think that's about it and it is getting quite late on the sad coast um <laughs> and so probably should uh call it a night all right y'all always a pleasure talking with you hope y'all enjoyed this and definitely looking forward to next week yeah talk to you soon good night everyone keep reading something good